All right, church, good morning again. Ah, there we go. We're, we got there. So, so glad to have all of you here with us this morning. So glad that we, we get this time together in the first Sunday of 2024. Thank you guys for making the commitment to being here. And so glad that we, we are part of our time together this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to, to uh, Genesis chapter 12. And then if you have, want to stick your finger in Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be hopping back and forth between uh, some of those stories and some of those texts together this morning. Because this morning we are uh, kicking off a brand new series. And it's one that, that I'm excited about. It's one that I've been looking forward to. In fact, this is a series that's about four and a half years in the making. Uh, and so we've been kicking around this idea for the series for over four and a half years. And finally, a couple, about a year and a half ago, we decided, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to do this series. And, and so it's finally here. And I'm excited for it. And it is simply called This We Believe. And so what we're going to be doing over the next 14 weeks is we are going to be walking through the Apostles' Creed. And so maybe if you're anything like me, maybe you grew up in a tradition that was kind of anti-creeds. And so maybe that was you. And, but one of the things that this creed is, it's one of the oldest creeds that we have, which takes the apostles' teaching and really distills it down into a succinct, simple thing to remember, holding these truths of what, what is significant. And so this is one of the oldest creeds for nearly 2,000 years old, this creed has been in existence. And it's one often, actually, if you read through this creed, it's one that Protestants and Catholics alike can agree on. So these are some common ground that we have with people. And one of the things that I love about this creed in particular is the creeds help point us to, to Jesus. This is what this creed does. It doesn't point us away from Jesus. It, it points us to him and to his, to his truths. And so each week, what we're going to do together is we are going to read the Apostles' Creed out loud, and then we're going to walk through a section of it as, as we go through our time together. Now, before we, before we go through the creed, I just want to acknowledge there are really two sticking points for people when it comes to the Apostles' Creed. There's two statements in there that seem a little questionable, and I just want to address those quickly before you go and read this out loud. And just so you know, too, when we get to that part of the creed, each one of these parts will have a significant amount of time. So I'm just going to help hopefully alleviate some of your worries in about 20 seconds. The first is the statement about Jesus that he descended into hell. All right. And so that's the first one. We're like, okay, what? Well, that seems a little odd. That seems a little weird. Uh, quite simply, if we look at where it is in the creed, and once again, I'll, we'll get into this in much more detail in a, in a few weeks, uh, but it's just a reminder that Jesus actually died. And so Jesus is, he's, he's not just partly dead to, to quote Princess Bride. He's not just mostly dead. He is actually dead, dead. Like he's fully, he fully dies. Okay. So that's the first part. The second part that people feel a little uncomfortable with is the statement, the Holy Catholic Church. And so maybe you read that and you're a little like, what, what's that about? Just a reminder, there was no such thing as the Protestant church five, 500 years ago before the Protestant Reformation happened. So this creed that's nearly 2,000 years old, it, a more helpful word for you if that makes you a little uncomfortable might be the Apostles' Church, the Apostolic Church. It's just like not, it's Big C Church, Jesus' global church all over the world. That's what we're saying when we're saying the Apostles' Creed. We'll get into that again in full, don't worry. But Hopefully that relieves some of your stress that I'm sure all of you came in here super worried about this morning uh, were those two statements. Uh, and so together, if you would, um, it's going to be up here on the screen. I'll move out of the way. We can just read the creed together uh, if you'd like to, to do this with us. 
So it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and of life everlasting. Amen. Amen. And so today, what we are going to be doing is we are going to be walking through those first two words, I believe. I believe. Those are the words that we're, that's the statement that we're walking through this morning. And so as we get started, as we start thinking about belief, and, and so I was just kind of brainstorming a few odd things that, that some people believe. Some people believe that, that the earth is flat. Flat earthers, people, there are people who believe that and they think every picture from outer space is, is manipulated and it's fake and they think all of the astronauts in the entire world who have ever been to space have collaborated together to, to formulate this one lie. When could people agree on anything? But they agree on this, and, and so they believe that the Earth is flat. A shockingly high number of people believe in the existence of unicorns. There is a, a strange group of people as well that believe chocolate milk comes from brown cows. If you are one of those people, I'm sorry to tell you, it does not come from brown cows, okay? And, and this is a story one of my buddies was sharing with me a few months ago is he, he was watching a video of this vegan who was making his smoothie for the morning and he's talking all about it. And he was saying how he only uses strawberry milk because he's a vegan, not realizing that strawberry milk was real milk with strawberry syrup mixed in it. He was thinking like strawberry milk was milked strawberries. I don't know how you would do that. Uh, but you know, <laughs> weird things people believe. And so this is why, as we're going through this series, that we're, we're doing this. Because I think it's important for us to know what we believe. And here's what we're going to be doing throughout this series. We are not just giving you the what, but we want to give you the why and the so what. So it's not just what we believe. It's not just why we believe it, but how does that change anything in us? And so as we start today, as we start a series like this, maybe you are wondering, like, why? Out of everything we just read and all of the denseness and the, the depth of everything we just read, why start with the statement, I believe? Why, why don't we just jump into God? Why don't we just jump in there? Because here's, here's why. It's because I believe is, is so significant for each of us. As we read this creed, this is not just a statement of faith, but rather this is a declaration of faith. This is not just things that we say. This is things that deep down we declare our faith. We declare our allegiance. So here's why we're starting with I believe, because these truths determine our steps and they chart the direction of our lives. If we believe these things to be true about who Jesus is, about his church, about the Holy Spirit, about God, it changes everything. It changes how we live our lives. And so it charts our course. It, it puts us on the direction in which we are going to live and the way in which we are going to go. And so we think it's very significant as we dive into the creed for us first to come to grips with, first to understand what it means to actually believe. 
and the way that it transforms and it changes our lives. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to walk through three aspects of believing and belief. And what we're going to find as we walk through these aspects, we're going to see is it builds this foundation of how we can understand and how we decipher and how we take the creed from here on out. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to study the life of a guy called Abraham. And so Abraham, his story jumps on for us in Genesis chapter 12, and his story goes all the way from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25. So buckle up. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of his story together this morning. We'll read little chunks of it, and then we'll kind of dialogue with some of the other parts, kind of tell you some of the story. We're not going to read 13, 14 chapters together, but Abraham is a significant character in the scriptures. He is the the founder, he is the father of the, the nation of Israel. In Matthew's gospel, when he starts his gospel, he gives the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham is the one that he tracks Jesus' family line back to. He's very, very significant. In fact, when we think about a person of faith, we think about someone who believed and, and his life was changed by what he believed. Abraham is a prime example. Because if you flip to Hebrews chapter 11, which is called affectionately known as the Hall of Faith, which has some of the greatest men and women who have ever been in relationship with God that are mentioned there. There's all kinds of different people. There's like, by faith, this guy did this. By faith, this guy did this. By faith, this guy did this. But then it comes to Abraham. And Abraham actually occupies more than 25% of all of Hebrews 11. So Abraham's story is laid out for us in Hebrews chapter 11. More than any other character in the scriptures, we find Abraham's story in this man of great faith. And so hopefully as we walk through this story together, we'll start to grasp, we'll start to understand what it looks like when we are saying, I believe what it actually means. And so let's dive in. Here's the first part of belief is belief as fault. Belief as fault. I I didn't think it would sound right to put belief as believing. Belief is believe. But like this idea of just our head, right? Knowing the right things having the right facts, knowing the right truth, and just just knowing some stuff. And this is the first aspect that we think of belief. And here's the reality. I think for most of us, this this is where we stop. We think, okay, if I just believe, if I just know the right stuff, then everything is fine. We think of beautiful passages like John 3, 16, where it says, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish. And we think to ourselves, okay, all I have to do is know the right things and everything will be will be fine and so if we look at genesis chapter 15 we see a moment in abraham's life there's this this moment that has gone on as god shows up to abraham and he says abraham he takes him outside and, and it had to be a cloudless night for this to really be to affect but he takes him outside and says abraham look at the stars start counting And he tries to count the stars and he can't really do it. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am making a covenant with you. I am making a promise with you that your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And that super cool moment that happens. God is making a covenant with Abraham. The problem is Abraham is about 90 years old. His wife, Sarah, she's about 80 years old and she doesn't have, they don't have any children. And so this sounds really good. This promise sounds beautiful, but like it doesn't really make a lot of sense logistically. But there's this moment in Genesis 15 verse six, where it says this of Abraham and Abram or Abram, Abraham's name has changed in a little while, believed the Lord 
and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So God shows up. God tells Abraham, here's what's going to happen. Abraham says, okay, God, I believe. I believe you. And he's counted as righteous because of his belief. And so this is the first thing that we see is belief as, as fault. And so maybe as you walk through this story, maybe as we walk through Abraham's story, maybe you start thinking, okay, Abraham must be a whole lot better than I am. Because if God showed up to me when I was 90 years old and my wife was 80 years old and said, you were going to have children, like, I don't think I would believe. I don't think I would buy into that, to what God was saying here. I don't think I'd really, you know, I don't think he'd be telling me the truth. Maybe that's like where we would be. And maybe you start thinking, well, Abraham is just this man of great faith. He never struggled. He never doubted. He never had any issues whatsoever. Um, In fact, like if you read through his life, he has nothing but issues, really. But just two verses later, here's what it says. God shows up. He believes him. And then in verse 8, Abraham replied, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure? So here's this man. This man of of faith, this man of belief, yet he is struggling to be sure. He is struggling with doubt. And maybe you're just wondering, I was like, how can that guy, how can that guy who who is struggling with doubt and struggling with belief, how does he occupy more than 25% of one of the greatest chapters of scripture about people of faith? Because we're going to walk through faith is not just facts. There's more to belief. There's more, than, more to belief than just knowing the right thing, more than just our, our head. And so let me let you in on just a little secret here. Is you don't have to have 100% belief before you start following Jesus. You don't have to have every single question answered. You don't have to have every single doubt erased. You don't have to have all of those things before you can start following after Jesus. And in Mark chapter 9, there's this beautiful story. We talked about it over the summer. But it's when Jesus heals a paralyzed man or a a a demon-possessed boy. And Jesus is having this dialogue with his dad. And the man, he tells, he goes to Jesus, says, Jesus, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, just believe. And it can happen. And this man makes this incredible statement. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And what we believe to be true about Jesus will determine a lot of ways of how we think that story is going to play out in our minds. Because if we think of Jesus as someone who who is just expecting and waiting for us to have perfect belief and no doubts at all, then maybe we think Jesus is going to say, sorry, buddy, you you don't have full belief. I can't heal your son. Not going to do it because you don't fully believe. You still have doubt. Or or maybe we think Jesus is is a little bit more generous than that and say, okay, buddy, you're at 99%. You're nearly there. Once you get to 100%, come back to me. Hopefully the demon hasn't killed your son by then. Then I will heal him. But that's not what Jesus does, does it? That's not how Jesus responds. No, Jesus casts out the demon and he commands it to never come back in him again because here's the reality of the scriptures as we walk through the scriptures together is Jesus has a lot of time for people in their honest doubts. Jesus has a lot of time for people in their honest struggles, which is good news for us because he has a lot of time for me. He has a lot of time for you. Think about the story of Peter when Peter walks on water. One of the most incredible stories in Scripture, Peter goes and he's walking on water and everything is great, but then it says of Peter that he begins to doubt. 
He gets a little bit afraid. He starts, takes his eyes off of Jesus, starts looking around, and he starts to sink. And notice what happens in the story is, is Jesus reaches out and he lifts Peter back up. Then there's this interesting detail in the story as it's told. And he says, then they walked into the boat. They walked to the boat together. So Jesus lifts up Peter in his doubt and walks with him to the boat. Jesus doesn't hold Peter's head under the water and says, once you believe fully, you can come back up. Jesus doesn't shame Peter and make fun of him for his lack of faith. No, he reaches out a hand and he helps Peter back into the boat. Then there's the story of Thomas after Jesus has died and resurrected. And Thomas kind of gets a, a bad rap on his name, Doubting Thomas. But he has one of these moments where like, he says, I won't believe that Jesus is raised from the dead until I go and I put my fingers in the nail holes of his hand. And Jesus meets Thomas. He doesn't say, Thomas, you, you, you unbelieving loser or whatever it may be. He doesn't say that to him. No, what does Jesus do to Thomas? He's like, you need the hands? Here you go. And so he has a lot of time for people in their honest doubts. And so maybe as we walk through this series, maybe there's some different things that you don't know. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I, if I fully understand that. I don't know if, if I, I have some doubts about that. Jesus has a lot of time for you. And this is one of the reasons that we as a church often talk about if you have questions, this is a place to ask them. Because Jesus had a lot of time for people in their honest doubts, we have a lot of time for people in their honest doubts and their questions and things that they may have. And what I love about this story is this man says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think that is one of the greatest prayers that we can pray. It's God, I believe, help my unbelief. Because there may be a prayer that you're asking for, a miracle that you're asking God for, and you know that he can do it, but you're still struggling with unbelief. You can pray and say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I know that you can turn that renegade and that, that prodigal son back to, back to you. I know you can do it, and I'm struggling to see how it's going to happen right now, but I believe, help my unbelief. God, I know that you can heal my friendships or you can heal my marriage. You can heal my, my job situation. God, I believe that to be true, but I'm struggling to see how you're going to do it. But I believe, help my unbelief. And when he does, when he meets us there, what I think happened in this guy's story is I'm pretty sure that when Jesus cast out the demon, that the father's unbelief went way down and his belief went way up. And here's the truth with us. We can meet Jesus. We can bring Jesus our 50% of belief and meet him there. Maybe it's less than 50%. Maybe you're not even 50-50 of what, whether or not you believe or not. Jesus has a lot of time for you. And so as we walk through this idea, this is the first thing that we think of belief. And if belief is only knowing the right things, then it doesn't seem right that Jesus would, would meet us there. Because here's the fact that belief is not just the right thoughts, not just knowing the right things. Not just knowing the right things about God or about Jesus. In fact, if, if we jump to, to James chapter 2, in James 2.19, James says, So you believe that there's one God? Super. Great. Even the demons believe that. Like, what, what, what different are you? And so belief is not just thought. Here's the next thing we're going to see is belief as action. Belief as action. It's this process of moving our faith from faith 
to faithfulness, to living out the things that we believe, to living out the truths about, about the scriptures. That's why we said at the very beginning that these statements are, are not, just de- they're not just statements of faith, they're the declaration of faith. They determine, they direct our lives, they guide us in the way that we are going to go. So faith is action. The first thing we see, belief as, as thought, it's our head. This is where it moves to our hands because our belief and our faith, it must turn to action. If we look a little bit before, G- James says that in James chapter two, he talks about our actions and the way that we live out what we believe. He says this in verse 14 of James two, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it with your action. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. And here's one of the, one of the things I think is true, is I actually believe one of the greatest turnoffs of Christianity to unbelievers is Christians who say they believe one thing, but yet their actions show a completely different thing. It's, it's the Christian that says, I believe that, that everyone has value and rights, and I believe that we should care for those who are in need. And then we sidestep the homeless person on the street and, and we roll our eyes at them. It's, it's the Christian that says, we, we believe in the sanctity of life and we believe in that. And then there's the single mom who's struggling in the grocery shop and you roll your eyes and you make rude comments about their child. And you go, I don't think, I think there's no more bigger of a turnoff than for us to say that we believe something and yet our lives show a completely different story. So may it never be said of us that what we said with our lips did not change the way that we lived. May it never be said of us of what we, what we believed in our head never impacted any other part of our, of our lives. And so as we, before as we continue to, to go through this, I want to just make sure that we understand that we are not saved by our works. We are saved by a faith that works. Here's what I mean by that. We are not saved by the things that we do. We are saved by the faith that makes us do the things that we do. The, the things that, that makes us and moves out of our hearts and our heads and moves to our hands. And as you think about my own life, Tiffany and I, we've been married for 12 years. And as we've been married, I've started to learn a few things, a few more things about what makes her happy and a few other things about what doesn't make her happy. And as I've been married longer and as we've learned those things, I try for the most part, unless I'm being a little feisty, to do less of the things that make her mad and more of the things that make her happy. Like, and like, I think most married people would say, for the most part, that's what we do. This week, I was actually reading uh, a story not long ago about how... The research shows that people who are married for long periods of time start looking like each other. And it's kind of a weird study. It's like, okay, Tiffany's, you, you, you don't have a lot to look forward to, baby. Sorry. But like, it's not, that's not exactly what is happening here. But what, what it's saying is like, they don't like look like identical twins. But what begins to happen is couples that have been together, what have they walked through together? They've been on the same holidays together. 
They've gone through the same difficulties together. They've walked through, through joys and triumphs and pain and suffering together. They've experienced all of these things with one another, the things that age you, the things that doesn't age you, the thing that tans you, the thing that gives you cloud burn right out in Ireland, whatever it may be. Like people walk through these things together. And so as people are married longer and longer, they begin to look more and more alike. And as our relationship with Jesus, the longer that we walk in relationship with him, the more we believe about him, the more our lives should reflect him. The more our lives should look like him. And so our belief, it can't just be thoughts and facts. It has to be action. It has to move. It has to change the way that we live. And so where we left Abraham is Abraham believed God and the next thing we see is that Abraham obeys God. In verse, uh, if we look at Hebrews 11, verse 8, it says this of Abraham. It says, It was by faith Abraham obeyed God when called to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And so we see that play out actually in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And I don't know about you, but that would have been a really hard thing to do. I mean, as we begin, as we think about this, we think about Abraham's story, what we find is like, not only is Abraham like this man of great faith, but we find out that his father was actually a worshiper of pagan gods. And yet God shows up to Abraham and tells him, go to the land that I will show you. And scripture says that, that he went. And I'll be honest. If God came up and showed up to me and said, Luke, just start walking. Go to the land I'm going to show you. I'm going to want a little more detail. I'm going to want a little more. You got to give me a little more than that. Like, you, you, at least tell me how far. At least tell me how long I'm going to have to walk. At least give me some sort of directional guidance. Like, you don't have to give me the destination, but if you can give me a few of the, the dots so we can connect here, I would appreciate that. And yet, here he is. He goes, he, God just says, Abraham, go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham goes. I don't know about you, but one of the things I hate almost more than anything else when we are on holiday is being lost. I cannot stand to be lost. I hate it more than almost anything else. And, and when Tiffany and I went on holiday about five, six years ago, we went to Venice in Italy. And there's this thing that you're supposed to do in Venice is is just get lost in Venice and experience it. And I hated it, all of it. Like, I, Venice was fine, but I hated the feeling of being lost. Like, I hated that idea of just like, just walk around and see what happens. If you've ever been to Venice, what you find out very quickly is Google Maps is useless. Like, it's not getting you anywhere. And then like, they'll give you a map and like you hold it right side up, upside down, doesn't matter, it isn't gonna help. And so it's just this moment, it's like you're just kind of wandering around and you're, maybe you're having a good time, but in the back of your mind, it's like, I don't think we're ever gonna find our B&B again. We're gonna have to sleep on the street. I don't know any possible way we're gonna get back to where we're supposed to be. And then one time we passed this restaurant, like we really wanna go eat there. We couldn't find the place at all for like the two days that we were there. We could never find it. And like, but it's, you know, you're just supposed to get lost in Venice. And like, no, I don't wanna be lost. I wanna know where I'm going. I wanna know how to get there. And I wanna know the direction in which we're supposed to go. And yet God says to Abraham, Abraham, get up and go. 
And Abraham says, okay. Okay, God. Because here's the reality about faith is sometimes it can feel like, like life without a map. It can feel like believing and walking after God. It can feel like life without a map. Believing may be life without a map, but it's not without a leader. Believing may be life without a map, but it is not without a leader. We may not know where the destination is going. We may not know for sure where he is sending us, but we know that there is a leader that we are following after. Those 30-odd years of Jesus' life, they're really significant for us. Like we just celebrated Christmas. We don't need to just rush Jesus from, from Christmas to the cross. Like those years that he lived, they matter. And in the midst of that, he shows us what it looks like to live. He shows us what it looks like to live out the kingdom of heaven. And so believing may be life without a map. God might come and say, go to the land that I will show you. It may be without a map, but it's not without a leader. And we see when Jesus lead, or God leads his people out of Exodus or out of Egypt in the Exodus, he gives them the pillar of fire to guide them at night and the pillar of cloud to guide them during the day. For us, he's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit to guide us along and show us the way that we are meant to go. And so, when we feel the Holy Spirit leading us to do things, we should do it because our belief is action. And so maybe you're anything like me and you'll, you'll feel like this, this feeling with inside of you. It's like, I feel like maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now, but you don't really know for sure. Let me just encourage you err on the side of, of doing it. Err on the side of doing what you think might possibly the Holy Spirit might be calling you to do. Err on the side of being generous. Err on the side of being gracious. Err on the side of being loving to people. And so the first part of belief is thought. The next part of belief is action. And here's the final part is belief as belief as surrender. Belief as surrender. This is the moment where we're following God's will for our lives. And here's what God's will is. It's for us to live out the Great Commission. It's for us to live out the Sermon on the Mount of what God shows us. This is what life is meant to look like. And there's a problem, I think, often when we, when we get in church circles, we start talking about God's will. And like it can be a little bit confusing, right? And maybe you've had to wrestle with this in your own life. It's like, okay, is God's will for me to do X, Y, or Z? Is God's will for me to turn left here or to turn right here? What is God's will? What exactly does God want? And we start thinking of God's will more as like a path or a plan. But as we walk through the scripture, what we begin to find out is God's will isn't as much a path or a plan but a posture. It's a willingness to be in relationship with him, surrendering to him to every single part of our lives, walking in step with the spirit, walking in step with God. And it's less about like you have to turn this way or that way. Like there are certain things that are fact that we have to do. Yes. But there's some other gray area where God is like, as you are walking in relationship with me, as you're walking in the posture of following after me, this is going to dictate your steps. And it's less a path or a plan and more of a posture. And so belief as surrender, this is, where, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the hardest part of belief. Because we are only saved by belief as surrender. Facts and thoughts 
They're not enough to save us. Our, our works don't save us. We're surrendering to Jesus who saves us. That is how we are saved, by surrendering our lives over to him. And here's the reality, is our belief is only as good as the object in which we believe in. Our belief is only as strong as the object that we believe in. And so we are believing in Jesus. We are surrendering in Jesus. And we know that that is solid because we know he is trustworthy. I don't know if you guys have ever had one of these moments where you got on an airplane. And as you get on the airplane, maybe you look around at some of the people flying. And if you fly enough, you can tell the people who don't fly very often or who are terrified of flying, right? You, they're the people who are sitting there. They're antsy. They're dancing all around. They're like, when are we going to do? Every little bit of turbulence, they're grabbing. They're like, what's happening? Are we about to go down? And then there's the person who gets on the airplane. As soon as they get on the airplane, they pop in their AirPods. They put their eye cover on and they're just like done. Like they're just chilling. Like there's that person. So the person though, that's like new to the flying experience might be a little more nervous than the seasoned flyer. Last year, Tiffany and I, we, I don't remember where we were flying to. I think we we're going back to the States. And there was a lady on our flight who, uh, bless her heart, had never experienced turbulence before. And like she was sitting in the seat and it's a, it's a bit of a rocky, rocky ride. And like we hit some bad turbulence and homegirl turns white. She grabs the arm of the man next to her across the aisle and just like holding on for dear life. She doesn't even know the guy. She is just like terrified. She is freaked out. She doesn't even know what's happening. It's like, just like this lady's like about to hyperventilate. There's all this fear that's going on. And I'm just sitting there and our kids are like, Paw Patrol, cool. And as this moment is like, your faith is only as good as the object that you put your faith in. She did not have a whole lot of faith in that airplane. And here's the thing. For some odd reason, you can put your faith in politics or political leaders. You can put your faith, you can put your belief in a spouse. You can put your belief in a friend. You can put your belief in money. But those things are all going to let you down. At some point, they are all going to let us down. But Jesus, he never will. He is the one that is worth putting our belief in. He is the one who is firm and he is steady. And the more that I have followed Jesus in my life, the more of my life that I have surrendered over to him, the more I have realized how trustworthy he is. And I've discovered that his way is better. That his posture is better. And so where we left Abraham is Abraham believes God. He, he walks with where God tells him to go. In faithfulness, he's following after him. And then we get to, to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter eight, 18. Sorry, in Genesis chapter 18. And things haven't quite gone the way that the Abraham thought they were. Like in this moment, this has been about 10 years in time that has transpired. And Abraham knows that he's going to have a kid. And yet there's this moment where God shows up in Genesis chapter 17. And again, he reminds him, he makes another covenant with him because Abraham and Sarah, they've decided to try to jumpstart the process. Sarah gives Abraham her servant to try to have a kid with. They have, her name is Hagar and they have this kid Ishmael. And like Abraham's like, I guess that's, that's the heir. That's the one and through whom I am going to have a kid. And God shows up again in Genesis chapter 17. is like, look, buddy, look at the stars. Try to count the stars. That is how many descendants you are going to have. And it's going to be through your offspring, through Sarah's offspring, that a child is going to come. And yet, here's this 89-year-old woman 
Here's this 99-year-old man, and there is no kids. This is all hope seems lost. And here's often where God does his best work. When all hope seems lost, when there seems like there's no possible way. And God, in, verse, in chapter 18, he makes a promise, and, and Sarah overhears it. And you know what Sarah does? She laughs. Yeah, good one, God. You're such a jokester. You're so funny. Like, this isn't a wound that's been festering for 89 years. Like, thanks for bringing this up, God. Ha, ha, ha. And I picture this moment like this is like laugh instead of cry for Sarah. And then this is, this is what happens in chapter 18, verses 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Don't miss this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, nothing is too hard for him. If we flip over to chapter 21, we get the fulfillment of, of this, this question. Is anything too hard for God? Chapter 21, verse 1, The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son for Abraham at his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would, and Abraham named his son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. It's beautiful. And this is kind of how we expect the story to end, right? Like as we were, as if this was going on in cinema, we expect like here's the moment that the credits begin to roll. Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac are riding off in their donkeys. They got their arms around each other. It's just this happy, warm feeling story. The credits begin to roll. And at the very end of the story, there's this, this, this trailer, this hidden trailer at the end of the credits. And you see Abraham and Isaac running around with all the grandchildren around. And like, this is just kind of what you expect to happen. Like, that's how you think the story is supposed to end. But that's not how the story ends. That's not what goes on here because belief isn't just facts. Belief isn't just action. Belief is surrender. Surrendering our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. So one chapter later in Genesis 22, everything's happy. Things are good. We're all laughing because they have a kid. And then sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called him. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey. He took his son... He, and two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for the fire of a burnt offering and set out for the place that God had told him about. Two times in Abraham's life, God tells him, go to the place where I'll show you. Two times Abraham goes. And so Abraham and Isaac, they make the walk 
three-day journey to, to Mount Moriah. And they go up to the top and they're making their way up, up the mountain. And, and, Abraham, and Isaac's looking around. I was like, Dad, we, we forgot something. We've got wood. We've got fire. We, we're missing a very important part of the sacrifice. We're missing the, we're missing the animal to be sacrificed. And Abraham says, God will provide the animal. And they get to the top. They build the altar for the sacrifice. And Isaac is laid on top of the sacrifice. He is laid on top of the altar. And Abraham is ready to sacrifice his own son. And in verse 12, it says this. God calls out to him again. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Don't miss that. Belief is surrender. Abraham withholds nothing from God, even his very son. He is willing to give that out. And this is the point that we need to all reach in our lives. This is what God is wanting from us. This is what Jesus desires from us. That moment where we surrender everything to him, where we give up everything. We turn to him and surrender with our palms open wide, saying, God, there is nothing that I have that you are not allowed access to. There is nothing in my life that I am not surrendering to you. This is the moment. This is belief. This is what it means when we say, I believe. It is saying, God, you can have my relationships. You can have my job. You can have my family. You can have my heart. You can have my free time, my money, my hobby, my entertainment choices. God, I'm giving them all to you. I'm surrendering them all to you. I am not holding on to anything else. I'm giving it all to you. We withhold nothing from him. This is what it means to believe is we surrender everything to the Lordship of Jesus. Because there's this statement that we make when we step into relationship with God. We say, I believe, and we confess that Jesus is Lord, and we confess He is my Lord and my Savior. Here's the thing, we don't separate the two. We can't just have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. And so we say, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are the boss of my life. Whatever you say goes. Whatever you want from me is what I am going to do. Because belief is surrender. And here's what happens in our lives. Is believing moves from our head to our heart to our hands. Believing moves from our head to our hearts to our hands. Sometimes the order is reversed. Sometimes it doesn't always work from head, heart, hands. Sometimes it starts on hands and then goes to head or heart. But all three have to be there because belief is is thought belief is action and belief is surrender and as we look about this story we start to ask this question like why why would abraham be willing to sacrifice his only son why would abraham have even have gone up gone through this we see the answer in hebrews chapter 11 hebrews 11 gives us the answer as to why why Abraham would do such a thing. Verses 17 through 19, it says this, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned, believed, trusted, 
that if Isaac died, God would be able to bring him back to life again. So Abraham is willing to sacrifice his own son because he believes that God could bring him back to life. But the question is, if we know the story of the scriptures, why would Abraham have the audacity to believe such a thing? At this point in the story, at this point of the biblical narrative, God has not raised anyone from the dead that we know of yet. But yet, Abraham is saying, well, God, God can do this. I trust that God could raise him from the dead. So what is it? Why is Abraham willing, having the audacity, why would he believe this? Because he, he knows God's track record. He is, God has made enough promises to Abraham that God has kept, and he knows that somehow, some way, God is going to work this out. Somehow, some way, God is going to do what he said he is going to do. I don't know how, I don't know what God is going to do, but I trust him to do it. Because really, when we look at the story of Abraham and Sarah as a whole, it is a story about how God brings life out of dead things. He brings life out of a woman who is barren and 90 years old. He brings life out of a man who is 100 and as good as dead. This is what God does. And Abraham reasons, Abraham believes, if that is what God can do, then there is nothing that he is not worth giving up for. There is nothing that I should not surrender to him because that is the God in which I believe in. And so the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice, it really is a foretelling of, of the story of Jesus. When another son walks up another hill with wood on his back to become a sacrifice. But the difference in the Abraham and Isaac story and the Jesus story is that, that Jesus knew. Jesus knew where the sacrifice was. Isaac may ask, Dad, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Jesus knew he was the sacrifice. And yet he willingly walks up that hill for us. Jesus was the willing sacrifice who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and descended into hell. And who on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there he will judge the living and the dead. This is what we believe. This is who I surrender to. So what about you? What about you? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for, for who you are.